You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. We're continuing to talk about the theme of Christian values in changing times. So our focus verse has been on Genesis 1, 26 and 27 as we've been meditating on what does it mean to be created in the image of God. And we've been focusing a lot on practical applications of uh, cultivating a distinctly Christian culture within the church and considering ways that we can impact our culture and our oikos, because everything in this class is about, all right, how do I talk more uh, competently and more informed to my members of my oikos? So today I thought we would, we've been talking about pro-life issues, kind of want to start a new conversation on the question, are humans animals? This is sort of an interesting question. So if you have intellectual people in your oikos, analytical people, people who like to ask a lot of very difficult questions, maybe you're the person who likes to ask a lot of difficult questions, right? Uh, And maybe these are questions that you are curious about. So we're going to kind of explore the question of what does it mean to be created in the image of God from a scientific point of view? What are scientists saying about this? So some of this might be a little bit challenging for you. I'm going to try to keep it as basic as I can. But um, this is a very interesting question because from our culture's point of view, uh, we are all just products of an evolutionary scenario, right? That that there were lower life forms that slowly evolved over time, changed over time, and ended with the appearance of humanity. This is the, the cultural narrative. And I think that this has some interesting moral implications for us and how we've arrived as a culture in how we look at what does it mean to be a human being. And so we're going to explore some of those questions this is um, just an article, I think it was on the Smithsonian website. This is, I think, a good reflection of where our culture is. I thought this article sort of summed it up, is that humans are nowhere near as special as we like to think. Humans have long believed that we are somehow special, but many traits once considered uniquely human are shared with the animals. and. I thought this caption under this picture was interesting. It says, there's not much difference between gorillas and humans. That's a fairly bold philosophical claim. I'm not sure of any gorillas who do calculus or go to art museums. I I don't know. Uh, That's just on the surface. There seems to be a little bit of a difference between the two. But um, this is where our culture is steering the conversation. So if you have people in your oikos, in the emerging generation, you need to understand that this is how they have been trained to think, is that uh, we are uh, not as special as we think. And so we're going to explore this question from a Christian worldview standpoint, okay? Now, we're not going to go into a ton of detail, but I want to, in this class, I'm always trying to give you the view from 30,000 feet to help, you know, at least get you familiar with the major contours of the conversation. This was an interesting article that I came across fairly recent, about a year ago, uh, from the New York Times, which I thought was interesting because it's a secular mainstream media publication, and I wanted to read a few excerpts from this. 
Um, and I have no idea who this author was or what their worldview was or where they were coming from, but I thought this was some, a, a different, an interesting minority voice in our culture. It says, philosophers and theologians in the Christian tradition have regarded human beings as distinguished from other animals by the presence within them of a divine spark. I don't like that term because uh, it has certain religious connotations. I've been using the concept in the class of being created in the image of God because that's how the Bible describes us, okay? But I'm thinking that's what this author has in mind. This inner source of illumination, again, that's a little more like other religious perspectives, but I'm, I'm having some grace here that what we're talking about is the image of God concept. The soul can never be grasped from outside and is in some way detached from the natural order, making maybe taking wing from some supernatural place where the body collapses and dies. In other words, we seem to be both a body and a soul. There seems to be both a physical and a non-physical component to what it means to be human. I think that's what they're very artfully trying to say there. Uh, recent advances in genetics, neuroscience, and evolutionary psychology have all but killed off that idea. In other words, we're not that different, all right? They, but they have raised the question of what to put in its place. For quite clearly, although we are animals, in other words, in the web of life, we are one of the creatures in the web of life, uh, bound in a web of causality that joins the zoosphere, we are not just animals. I think it's an interesting way of saying it. Are we more than animals? Is there something in the human condition that suggests the need for special treatment? Almost all people believe it is a crime to kill an innocent human, but it is not a crime to kill an innocent tapeworm. And, and although almost all people regard tapeworms as incapable of innocence in any case, not because they are always guilty, but because the distinction between innocent and guilty simply does not apply to them, they are the wrong kind of thing. There is something inherently different about humans and tapeworms. Are you with me? Yeah. So. We, however, are the right kind of thing. So what is that? Do any other beings, animals or otherwise, belong to it and what follows? These questions lie at the center of philosophical inquiry today as they have since the ancient Greeks. In thousands of ways, we distinguish people from the rest of nature and build our life accordingly. We don't really meditate on this very much, but we have built our whole lives on a premise that we are somewhat different than the rest of the life forms on the planet. You know, we, it's, we don't meditate a lot on that, but that is, there seems to be something to that. We believe that people have rights, that they are sovereign over their lives, that, they, that those who live by enslaving or abusing others are denying their own humanity. Surely there's a foundation for those beliefs, just as there's a foundation for all moral, legal, artistic, and spiritual traditions that take the distinctiveness of human life as their starting point. See, if we take a starting point that humans are different than animals, that leads to certain conclusions. And we're going to explore what some of those are in the coming weeks. If, as many people believe, there is a God and that God has made us in his own image, then of course we are distinct from nature just as he is. But talk of God's image as a metaphor for the very fact that we need to explain, namely that we treat the human being as a thing apart, a thing protected by a sacred aura. I'm not a fan of the word aura, but there's something in us that God seems to have put there that is different than the animals. And in short, 
it's not a thing at all, but a person. What does it mean to be a human person? So we're going to reflect for a couple of weeks on what science has to say about some of these issues, okay? And um, this just sort of, I thought, again, was interesting is a New York Times article. It's quite philosophical. And I don't know anything about the author, but he seems to at least be familiar with the Christian worldview in some broad sense, and being trying to reflect that in a way that our culture can understand and begin to ask some thoughtful questions about. So when we stand back and we think about our position here at Grace Church of Glendora, I think it's interesting if you go on our website, and I've given you the web address here, you can see that our church doesn't actually take an official belief on any of these following topics according to the Statement of Faith on our website. So if you go on our website and you say, what is Grace Church of Lindora? What are we up to? These, none of these terms are used on our Statement of Faith. So there's no official church belief on the issue of creation, how old the earth is, um, whether or not we believe in a historical Adam and Eve, first humans, first persons. None of those topics are mentioned in our statement of faith. Is anyone like a little shocked by that? Okay, only me. All right, so, <laughs> huh? It never has. Well, it has, actually, because I went to the old statement of faith. So our old statement, I went to that this is what it says about the first humans. And this is what used to be on our website is it says, we believe that humanity, male and female, was uniquely made in the image of God. Well, that sounds like what we've been talking about. And for his glory to exercise dominion, again, we've been talking about that in class, and enjoy a relationship with God forever. forever. We talked about uh, way back in October that one of the effects of the fall is that we've lost relationship with the creator. We talked about the second effect of the fall is that we have problematic relationships with one another as humans. And we talked about the third effect of the fall is that we have problematic relationships with the earth and our environment, that, that has, sin has affected those three areas of our life. God created Adam from the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam's side or his rib. Now, there's no mention in our previous doctrinal statement about when Adam was created. That was considered to be an open question of when. It's, it's that, the, the, remember our previous leadership would always say we want to keep the main thing the main thing, right? So the main things that have been identified is that God created Adam and Eve, not when God created Adam and Eve. Are you with me? But when we talk about keeping the main thing the main thing, we're talking about what's in that circle of beliefs that we have identified as being uh, primary beliefs of what does it mean to be a Christian, right? And we talked, oh man, so much last year about the Trinity as being, like if you don't have the Trinity, you don't have Christianity, all right? That's the foundation of everything. And in that you have the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, which is that God came in human flesh, if you don't have the incarnation, you don't have Christianity. You have something else, right? If you don't have um, uh, the cross and the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. You have something else, right? So we have identified as a church, these are, 
these are these are the main core primary beliefs, okay? But then there's these other beliefs that I like to call secondary or agree to disagree issues among Christians or among Protestants even. That these are, so we'll call these primary and these are secondary. So one of these might be whether or not we uh, sprinkle or dunk, okay? Sprinkle or dunk is an agree to disagree issue. All right, the primary thing is baptism. Baptism is part of what it means to be a Christian, that there is this initiation into the faith, right? Whether we sprinkle or dunk, we can talk about it. Nobody's like leaving the church about sprinkling or dunking, hopefully. Nobody's like getting into arguments about it. We're going to, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be civil with each other. We don't think that these people aren't Christians because they sprinkle, right? Now, we might have a conversation about what's primary and how to identify those things. That's always an interesting conversation. But there are things that we say as, as Christians, well, that's a secondary issue. So... When we talk about, now I'm going back to our conversation over here about the first humans. I would say that Adam and Eve, as historical real persons, is more of a primary issue. Because Jesus looked at Adam and Eve as being historical persons. He references them in his own teachings in Luke chapter 4. Adam is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And so to make Adam a mythical creature is, I think, you, you'd be hard-pressed to understand how the genealogy could, of Jesus could be real person, real person, real person, real person, mythological person. Are you with me? That would be difficult. So I think that if we were to talk about what's primary, I think our church did well to identify the primary issues. It's that we are, that Adam and Eve were created, they, were, they alone possessed the image of God, they were given dominion, um, and that they were, they were created beings, that they had, they were not the products of a long line of succession of animals, okay? So I, this is, and, and that the, the when, okay, you see I have, I have the word when underlined, that the when, is an interesting question that we can explore, we can talk about, we can disagree on, but we ought not to make the when a primary issue. Okay? All right, so we're going to look at some quick scriptures here. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, we've kind of already covered this. The main thing is that we, uh, we were created in God's image. Uh, we were created to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. That's the dominion part of it. Humans alone have the breath of life. The plants are not described as having the breath of life. Animals are not described as having the breath of life. Only humans have the breath of life. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what that is. So what the breath of life is might be a secondary issue. We can explore it. We can be curious. We can ask questions. But the question that humans alone have the breath of life, I think, is an important observation. 
Psalm 8 is another very powerful reflection. It says the humans are a little lower than the angels, and God has crowned them with glory and honor. In other words, of all of God's works on the earth, humans are the, the pinnacle of his creation. The next order up is the angels in the spirit realm. And that we are created to be rulers over God's other works. I think that's interesting. Um, in, from a New Testament perspective, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, People have one kind of flesh and animals have another, birds another, fish another. In other words, God created the creation in such a way that there are differences. There are distinctions. There are categories. And we are different than the heavenly bodies. The, heaven, the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendor of earthly bodies is another. We're different than the sun and the moon. God created different things differently. And these are in different categories, different buckets, if you will. Humans alone have the right to become children of God. That's not a designation of the animals. Only humans can become God's children. And uh, a, a really important point here that I might make into a full lesson is to explore the scriptural content that only um, those who enjoy salvation have the designation of being God's child. All humans are created in the image of God, but not all humans are God's children. Does he call them children? That's an interesting thing to reflect on. That, that a child, to be a child of God, is a designation that only some humans have. So there's a difference there between being created in the image of God that applies to all humans, but only those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ are children that have been adopted as sons, co-heirs with Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15 also talks about how humans alone are created for immortality. We are created to be resurrected someday. There's no verse in scripture about animals being resurrected. Many of us have reflections and affections for our pets, but I always don't like that conversation because people want to know if their dog is going to heaven, and I'm like... I don't know. Don't you know God, go he doesn't say there. He doesn't say anything about it. Maybe. Enjoy yes, I can't say definitively about that. Because only those that are created immortal and imperishable are human beings. We are created to be resurrected and go into the eternal state. So the, the historic Christian position is that there is some kind of an unbridgeable gap between humans and animals. Okay, hopefully I've made that biblical case. That this is not just a one verse, one trick pony thing. It's just the, the cumulative wisdom of scripture is that there is some kind of unbridgeable gap. There is something different about being a human versus being an animal. Now I spent a whole other lesson back in September saying, we love animals. Animals have soulish capacity. I'm not saying devalue animals, torture animals. Are you with me? I remember the whole whale clip. Some of you were like, I'm never going to class again. I was traumatized by the whale clip. All right. But I value animals, but I'm also making the point that we are different than the animals. There is something different about us. 
Okay, so then the question that we can be curious about is what is that gap? This is where scientists and philosophers and theologians can help us to probe what that gap really is. And we need thoughtful Christians to be part of this cultural conversation. We need Christians going into science, going into philosophy, going into theology to help be part of this cultural conversation. We need Christians writing articles in the New York Times and being in the public sphere and part of the, uh, having a seat at the table of cultural ideas. That's an important thing. So Romans 1, which was not a passage I put on here, but it talks about how God has created everything and that, that we are different than, than the creator. We don't worship the creation. The creation is not spiritual. Right. God alone has spirit. And we worship the creator, not the creation. That's a, that would be, have been another important passage to include in this survey. Okay, So we're going to explore some of these things with my friend, Dr. Fazrana. Uh, I honestly, I can't even imagine like the privilege of working with this guy. I can't imagine a more qualified person on the entire planet, literally, to talk to about this question of what does it mean to be created in the image of God from a Christian and a scientific point of view. He has a PhD in biochemistry from uh, the University of Ohio. He's been working for over 20 years in the area of uh, human origins. And he's more current on the literature than probably most evolutionary biologists. He reads the peer-reviewed articles every day and is reflecting on them from a Christian point of view. And he's really one of the leading thinkers among Christians. I would argue he is the leading thinker. And his office is next to mine. So <laughs> I'm pulling him over and saying, hey, Fuzz, can we do this? I pulled him in my office this week, and we had a little conversation. So we're going to stop and start this and sort of process it as we go along. So I want you to know, like, this isn't just some Yahoo that I met at the grocery store. Uh, this is a guy who has legitimate academic credentials and has been reflecting deeply on this question for a very, very long time. Hey everyone, welcome. I'm here with my friend, Dr. Fuzrana, and as you know, we've been talking about the image of God all this year. We started way back in September, and I thought it would be fun as we've been reflecting on so many of the practical applications of the image of God to take some time to talk about it from a scientific point of view. And there's no better man on the whole planet to talk about that with than my friend, Dr. Fuzrana, and there's your book right there. <laughs> I love it. There we go. <laughs> who is Adam? Author of Who is Adam? And really, you and I, Fuzz, we've been working together uh, 18 years now, and mm -hmm. you have been engaged in this very long-term project coming up on two decades of really studying the origin of humanity mm -hmm. and it probing the question of the image of God mm -hmm. from a scientific point of view. Right. So it's just an honor to be able to talk to you about these issues. And so let's just start off with some basics about what is the image of God. And um, we've been talking in my class about Genesis 1, 26, 27, hmm. but there's some differing right. views about yeah. that concept, even among Christians. Yeah. And, you know, it's important to kind of review the different perspectives on the image of God before we plow into the question, is there scientific evidence for uh, the Imago Dei or for the image of God? And, you know, it's interesting because when you go to Genesis 1, where this idea is introduced, there's really not a definition or a description there as to what the image of God is, other than this idea 
that because we bear God's image, we're granted dominion over the creation and that we are to serve as caretakers of the creation. So there's a, a connection between being caretakers and having dominion over the creation and this idea that, that human beings bear God's image. And because of that, you see three views that, that theologians um, suggest or propose. Yeah. One is called the resemblance view, which is a, a view that um, uh, probably is the, the historic view. Um, and that's the idea that we have attributes as human beings that, are, that resemble God's attributes. They're not identical to them, but they resemble his attributes. So we have a, a, a creativity. We have a, an intellectual capability, um, the capacity for reason and you know, rational thought. Uh, we have uh, a moral sense. Uh, we have a, a, a relational aspect to our, our nature, our character. Uh, and uh, we have a sense of the transcendent and we desire to try to connect to it. We have a religious impulse. Uh, now, the, 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 this view is, is, interestingly enough, has kind of fallen out of favor to some degree. Uh, I'm not quite sure the, why that is. But there are other views that have taken its place. For example, uh, something called the representative view, that the image of God is really a title that's granted to us mm -hmm because we are to serve as God's representatives here on earth. That doesn't necessarily mean we have any attributes one way or the other that distinguish us from other creatures or that resemble God's. We're just given the title. Uh, others say that the image of God is, again, like a title, but it's a title communicating our special status and that we uniquely have a relationship with the Creator. Now, those three views don't have to be mutually exclusive. You could argue that if we are resemble God that makes us ideally suited to serve as God's representatives and allows us to have the capacity to relate to him. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, last spring I got to go to Israel on a, 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 a tour of Israel. It was sponsored by Bible Study Fellowship. And the tour leader was Walt Kaiser, a very prominent Old Testament scholar. So when it, we were having dinner one night and I got to sit at Walt Kaiser's table and I started chatting with him, and I asked him, well, so what is the image of God? And his response was, oh, it's the resemblance view. And he said, that, because that's what the Bible teaches. And he pointed out Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24 that essentially describe the, the image of God as relating to knowledge and understanding and the capacity for love and righteousness. And so he took that as essentially being an affirmation of the resemblance view. And this is really very important because the resemblance view is now going to allow us to build a scientific case for the image of God. Okay, do you have any questions so far? Just kind of checking in. The resemblance is that we have certain attributes that are like God. So that could be creativity. God is very creative. He's the creator, right? And that's, that's a... That's a um, feature that w maybe I'll develop a lesson sometime later of the creative aspect of the image of God. That's historically been part of what it means to be created, to have the image of God and being his image bearer is that we are creative beings. And creative doesn't just mean art. It can be creative problem solving. It could be coming up with creative, fresh solutions to things. And, but it could also include art 
and, and the arts. And that's typically the biblical foundation for the arts is in the image of God. It would include reason, it would include skills like being able to do high-level mathematics, to do logic, um, to not only create art, but then appreciate art. Humans go to museums, and we look at it, and we, we have dialogues about it. Yeah, <laughs> But we have dialogues about it, and we talk about the philosophical implications of the art and what it means. We read books. I mean, the whole idea of language is so fascinating to me that we have the ability and the capacity to read the same books and the same words and that we put words into sentences and those reflect ideas. These are all things that um, are the result of very high-ordered thinking. And, and, but we're going to probe now what the limits of some of these things are among humans because animals do engage in some of these activities. And that's what he said, is that it could... Why we, it, we don't. It's just that the resemblance b view is the more historic view, that we, are, we have these certain capacities. The reason that some people have moved away from that view is because there are some Christians who want to say that uh, God used evolution as a mechanism to create hum humanity, and that we are at the end of a chain of creatures. And what makes us different than the animals is not our, the representation part of it, or you know, the, the resemblance part of it. They would say, well, rather the first humans were not even the first humans. God just selected a couple and said, you will re represent the human race. And when, when that particular couple fell into sin, then all of humanity fell into sin. So the representative view is the view that is often advocated by those Christians who do not hold to a historical Adam and Eve as being the first historical persons. Okay? So that's, that's what is behind that view. So yes, like he said, he could see a way that all three of these could be true. So but the, the third one? Uh, relationship. Relationship. That we are, we are created for a relationship, which we are. We're not saying that we're not. We're just saying that's not the primary meaning of what the image of God means. There is not agreement among those who hold to a theistic evolution point of view as to what the image of God is. Some would say, yes, the resemblance view would be included under the representative view. Many would say not. And so it depends on the type of theistic evolutionist you're talking to, which is going in more detail than I had planned to. But I can refer you to books that talk about these matters in much detail. I just want you to understand that there's different Christian positions on the image of God. And we are taking the position that there is a literal historical Adam and Eve, and that is the, we're talking about keeping the main thing the main thing, and that the, re, the um, resemblance view is the historic Christian position. Okay. And yeah. Absolutely. The, the, the probing the question of humans as moral creatures would be another aspect of the image of God, which is definitely one of the themes that we have been talking about in this teaching series. Yes, Susanna. Why is it necessary to be a primary belief about Adam and Eve for me? Yeah. I'm a kind of a liberal in some ways. I believe there were a lot. Of, uh, from what I understand, there were a lot of creation stories at the time. And this is oral. Now, sure. does that 
by not by not believing in literal Adam Eve, does that negate the fact that I still believe that God created us? How He created us is not a big sure for me, uh, but I believe we are made in the image of God. Um, I also believe the Bible is an oral tradition that gets changed and, and stuff. So in that sense, I don't believe in the Bible literally. I believe in it more actually. It, it, because, I don't know, that may sound weird, but it's like I can be a little more honest and say, I believe, I believe in the Bible, I, but I don't take every cotton-picking thing literally. Okay, so let me just ask you a couple follow-up questions to that. So if you don't hold to a historical Adam and Eve as being the first pair. Right. Okay, so how do you understand Luke chapter 4, where Jesus' genealogy is, genealogy. is hooked to... Hooked to Adam. So how would you account for that in your view? Um, I have not heard that until you said today. Okay. So she's got um, homework. But um, So you can reflect on that. Yeah, I so, can reflect on that because I I don't know. I just, just don't see that the, the the God dropped this Bible without without any so, anything wrong with it at all. Sure. You know? So would you entertain the possibility that maybe your understanding of how scripture was written might not be accurate to how it was written. Would you entertain that as a possibility? Okay, so how would you, then let me ask you this question, how would you account for Jesus' statements about Adam being the first couple and that that is the foundation for our understanding of human marriage? How would you, if, if they're not the first couple? Yeah, so who would that be if it's not Adam and Eve? You don't have all the details in, in Genesis. For sure. It continued from one couple to millions of people. Sure, but you, how does that work? You know? But you just told me you don't believe in a first pair, so I'm trying to understand. I in a first pair, but exactly in Genesis, everything, literally every cotton picking thing, it's like, okay, how did the next generation of people come from? Are you watching what I'm doing right now? Um, womb. Okay, so. What I'm trying to understand, though, is that you made the assertion, and I'm trying to make sure I understand it. Okay. You made the assertion that you don't believe in Adam and Eve being the first couple. Is that true? Or are you still holding to that assertion, or are you modifying that? Sure. Okay. All right. Good. So we've shifted from I don't believe in it to I'm not sure. I'm not sure okay. exactly. Okay. And to think I do know, for me, that's ego, thinking I know what. Sure. how God did everything. Sure. Okay. So here's something to consider is maybe read the account of Jesus where he talks about Adam and Eve as being the first couple and that that is the foundation of marriage. I think it's in Matthew 19, but I could be wrong about that. So uh, I, would, I would be curious to know then, my second question is, how do you know what sections are, ought to be taken literally and which sections ought not to be taken literally. So what's your criteria that you use for that assertion? Well, we don't take, for instance, literature. We don't take that all literally, like a parable, for instance. Sure, but I don't think I've ever argued that parables are literal. Yeah, yeah, those okay. kind of things. I think that's where I am not a biblical scholar by any, by any imagination. Sure, but you made some, some very bold assumptions, and so I'm, I'm just asking you, like, how do you decide that? I think a lot of times that we assume we understand the context when we really don't. 
sure. take it literally, and when we, it's like, ah, uh, but it doesn't really apply to our culture. So would you be open to the possibility that maybe you make assumptions sometimes about the te text? Okay, so I'm, I'm certainly open to that, that I make assumptions, and that's part of... From a Christian standpoint, absolutely. fit your, your criteria here. But I could tell you what my criteria are. Mm -hmm. And so I, when I'm asking you is that you've made the bold assumption or the bold assertion that you don't take the Bible literally. So I'm asking you. Not every Yeah, OK. So let me be more specific. When we, just a second. When we talk about Genesis, what is your understanding of what the genre of literature is for the book of Genesis? Is it parable? Is it poetry? Is it history? What, what is your understanding of what the genre of literature is? Because you just told me that parables are not to be taken literally, which I am in full agreement on, because there are but many. There's wisdom there. There's yeah. teaching and understanding. Regardless. Sure. Yeah, so what's the genre of literature? Uh, I believe it's the Torah and history. So you're thinking that Genesis is history? From what I, from what I gather. OK. Now, who? Who actually wrote down all this? I don't remember. Either. Sure. But I understand it's Moses. Okay. So let's just let's just put the authorship aside for a second. Okay. So you're making you you would agree with me that Genesis is history, which I, that's my belief as well. Is that Genesis is history? Is that is, do, am I accurately reflecting your belief? Yes. Okay. But it was from oral tradition. Okay, how much of it, okay. How many generations? And yeah, so what's your understanding of what oral tradition is in the Jewish, ancient Jewish concept, context? Oral meaning eventually it's put down, but sometimes your stories can change a bit. That's okay, so would you be open to the, the possibility that that's not actually an accurate reflection of how oral tradition is preserved in ancient contexts? Okay, so that there might be another possibility there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's your move? <laughs> so <laughs> I'm trying. How is it preserved? Tell me. It. So when we look at and understand how ancient cultures viewed and and um, passed on oral traditions, we have a tendency as Western 21st century Americans to, to think that that's sort of like a game of telephone or what the Brits call whispers, Chinese whispers, where you ever play that game in elementary school? Like I, I tell Yolanda something and then she tells Mrs. Long and then she tells Mrs. Alder and then she, Mrs. Alder tells Melinda and, and we go around and then we get over here to Mrs. Bradley and it's like some totally different thing, right? <laughs> And so maybe um, I, I started off, I'm, I'm the person who has the first aspect of the oral tradition, and then I give it to Yolanda, okay? And then there was some corruption that was introduced um, unintentionally by Mrs. Long, because, you know, her hearing, she's older, <laughs> you know, I don't know, that there was a hearing issue, and, you know, maybe somebody's got speech issues, and, you know, like things get, things get messed up. Right? That's our tendency of what we think oral tradition is. But I would like to suggest that when you really study how ancient people handed down oral tradition, that's not actually what happened. That they had a process and a procedure 
for how they would preserve things. And they were an oral culture. We are not. Right. We are not an oral culture. We are a visual culture. So we process and take in information quite differently than the ancients. Our brains have changed because we process so much in the visual realm. So it's hard for us to even imagine that these pre-literate people were accurately preserving this record. So what we see in when we study these things of how this worked in the ancient world, we have to get past our assumption that it was something like the game of telephone. And we have to think, we, when we look at the textual traditions, we see that things were preserved very early and that there's, there's uniformity from the most ancient manuscripts we have until the time of Jesus. And so we have to be careful about making the assertion that there were all these changes because that's an assumption that's not proven. But there's actually evidence the other direction that they were not changed. Feel free to jump in here if there's anything you have to say coming from a Jewish context as to what if I'm right. misstating anything. So the, the, the issue of how things were orally translated, I, I agree, is, an, is, an, is a, a, an, a something that needs to be understood and discussed. But it might not be quite as flimsy as what you think it is. Okay. Now, to the question of, so there's a couple questions you brought up, was, was the oral tradition and the, the historicity of Adam and Eve. Now, the, the representative view, yes, you're, you're very intuitive in seeing that that is a preferred view if God used evolution as a mechanism. My problem with the, with the view of theistic evolution is that the, the cumulative case of scripture, some of which I just outlined, to me presents a problem for that view. Because there's nothing in scripture that makes me believe that we came from lower primates. Everything seems to indicate that we were an intervention, a special creation of God. And so it's not that I'm, I'm close to that point of view. I'm just saying that the biblical evidence for that view is lacking. Now, um, I think that it's, are you guys all like, okay? I'm just checking in. Like, all right. <laughs> so I think that if we adopt the position that Adam and Eve were not the first pair and not the first human persons, we have to be able to account for the New Testament understanding of Jesus and the apostles that appears that they understood them as being literal historical persons. We can't just make that assertion because from the New Testament point of view, it seems that that's how the apostles understood them. Now, I wrote a journal article that was published in the journal of, um, I think it was called Science and Faith, on 2 Peter chapter 3, where I explored this very question of how did the apostles view the first chapters of Genesis? Did they, what genre of, that's the point I was going to come back to. Thank you, Jesus. There's the genre of literature. Did the, Jesus and the apostles view the first 11 chapters of Genesis as something other than history? Did they view it as, and you made, one of the assertions that you made is, well, there was a lot of creation stories floating around the ancient Near Eastern world. That's a 
historical fact. I don't dispute that data. The question is, is what is the genre of literature of Genesis 1 to 11? That's really the question that matters. Because if Genesis 1 through 11, all scholars, all biblical scholars agree that it's history from chapter 12 forward. The, the only dispute is what is it in Genesis 1 through 11? Is it the same as Genesis 1 through 40 whatever? Or is it something else? Is it an ancient Near Eastern creation myth? Is it a different genre of literature? That's the critical question. Now, if it's a, are we all still okay? All right. Uh, yeah. All right. So this was like not planned, but that's okay. It's the, no, it's all good because this is probably all questions that were in their minds too. So the, the, if the case can be made that Jesus and the apostles understood Genesis 1 through 11 as history, then I think that I get in a very uncomfortable position of suggesting that it's ancient Near Eastern myth. I think that there has to be some biblical case that we can make from the other authors of scripture that they also understood Genesis 1 through 11 as mythology. Are you with me? So I don't dispute that there are similarities between Genesis 1 through 11 and other ancient creation myths. There are some similarities. The question is, is why are they similar? Are they similar because there was a core truth that they all shared? And that the Bible's account is the truest truth. It's the most accurate truth of the story. And that these others were seizing on some core truths, but then also introducing some of their own cultural aspects to the story over time. Or is the Bible merely one of many ancient Near Eastern creation myths? That's a question to be explored, not merely asserted. Now, I would say that from the New Testament perspective, if you look in 2 Peter chapter 3, for example, since that's a, that's a passage I've studied pretty thoroughly because of, I did have a journal article published on this, that it seems to me that the apostles understood Genesis 1 through 11 as history and as the same genre of literature as the rest of Genesis. I think the onus is on the person making the assertion that it's a different genre of literature and that something happens between Babel and Abraham that now we have shifted the type of literature and we went from mythology to history. There's nothing inherent in the text itself that tells me now I'm doing a different genre of literature. Counterexample, the ministry of Jesus. The Gospels are the genre of history, right? They're history with a theological purpose. But embedded in that, we see parables. But we're alerted in the text we're making a shift. Jesus is telling a story now. So it's not all running together. It's saying, okay, within this book of Luke, Jesus tells parables. So I have a genre within a genre, if you will. So there is the possibility of that. We see this in the book of Chronicles. We see poetry in the middle of history. But the text alerts us that, okay, we're making a shift now. 
we don't see that shift between Genesis 11 and 12. It all seems to tell one story. So for the people that make the assertion that Genesis 1 through 11 is an ancient Near Eastern creation myth, great, let's have that conversation. But you have to provide some evidence for me that that's the case, that that is the genre of literature. I can provide evidence from the New Testament that seems to indicate that Jesus and the apostles saw it as history. So we have to have that conversation of how you're going to overcome that body of evidence. Okay, does any of that help? I feel like I just talked a really long time. I'm so sorry. Any questions about that? Yes, my concern was putting it in as the primary. Sure. Um, because just because I've said what I've said doesn't negate the fact I believe I was made in the image of God. Sure. God created me. And sometimes by me saying I don't believe every literally thing, everything, I actually have a higher view of scripture, if that So tell me about that. I, How is that? How does that work? You put the, the human component into it. Okay. Versus just this sacred text just kind of falling from the sky kind of attitude. Sure. That seems unrealistic to me. Sure. But these were people of God, and what they wrote was their experience with God, yeah. what they understood about God. What have I ever indicated in this class, and I'm asking for genuine feedback, yeah. What have I ever said that has given you the impression that I believe that the Bible fell from the sky, um, from the divine? Like, what have I said? Because if I've, if I've said that, I want to stop saying it. Yeah. So I, give me some feedback about that. kind of a general thing that I've known since I went to church here when I was young. Sure. You know, this, this idea that it just kind of came. So Not that, from you. Not yeah, so that's, that's useful. And so I want to like encourage you that um, go to go back on the class uh, website. I actually covered the origin of the Bible in quite some detail last year, and I, if I have ever given the impression in this class that the human component was not part of how Scripture came to be, I want to clarify that right now, that that humans were involved in the writing and preserving of Scripture. And that it is true that there were manuscript corruptions. And I've covered that in some detail in the class last year as to what those were. Um, huh? That was last year. Yeah. So I did a whole series about this time last year on the origin of scripture. So if I've ever made that assertion, I want to clarify that right now. I do think that the personalities of the human authors are are very much a part of what's also preserved in scripture. So the traditional position is that scripture is written by both humans and God together, but that the Holy Spirit, what we call the technical term for that is um, theopanoustos, he, it's God breathed. Yeah. And that he superintends that process with the human author. Now, um, the, the question of what the, um, whether or not the Bible has errors in it. Now, there's, there's types of errors. This is just a little review, so bear with me here. So the Bible includes moral teachings, theological teachings, in other words, teachings about God and who he is, how he operates. But then it, embedded in all of that is history 
and science, a lot of scientific assertions. So what some Christians do that are of a more what I call progressive evangelical stream of, of, of our faith is they would say, well, I think the Bible is accurate on the moral and the theological questions, that there's great value there. The Bible tells me how to live, how to be a good person, how to get saved, okay? Our church actually takes the position that the Bible is completely error-free, even in matters of history, that it's historically accurate. This is why the question of genre is so important, is because if, it's, if, it, if the genre of Genesis is history, our church is making the claim that the Bible is historically accurate, not just morally and theologically accurate. Does that make sense? So a scientific idea or an idea that's presented that has scientific implications that we'll get to, I guess, next week, is that Adam and Eve were real, literal, historical persons. Okay? That's, that's, that's a claim of history that has scientific implications. Can you see that? Where Adam and Eve were is a historical claim that has scientific implications. Because where was the garden? Who remembers from my Genesis class? Where was the Garden of Eden? Where the rivers came together, right? The Tigris and the Euphrates, the Pishon and the Gihon. Well, this is an indication to me, the author wants me to know that this is a real place. That Adam and Eve were put in a garden in a real place and time. This isn't a mythological place. And so, it, but that has scientific implications. Where did the first humans come from? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So if, the, if science tells me that the first humans came from North America, and the Bible tells me that they came from somewhere around North Africa and the Middle East, I got a big problem. Right? So the Bible has, makes many, many historical claims. Some of them have scientific, what we call scientific implications. Is this, is this making sense? So when we talk about a, a literal Adam and Eve, that's not to say, well, people that don't hold to that, like, they're not Christians. That's not the point. Maybe they just haven't reflected deeply on it yet. Maybe they've, nobody's ever sat them down and said, hey, are you aware that the historic Christian position is that Adam and Eve were literal historical persons, that they were a first pair, and that it had these theological consequences for the fall and our salvation and... Paul, another, another question to ask is in uh, Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Adam is specifically mentioned as the first human, and he's compared to Jesus. And there's something about the doctrine of salvation that is tied up in Adam being a literal historical person, just as Jesus is a literal historical person. So if, Jesus, if Adam is not a literal historical person, if he's only a figurative person or a representative person, does that have any implications for our salvation and our belief in Jesus? That's a, that's a question that we have to be curious about and ask and discuss. But this is why, these are some of the reasons why this matters. The idea that we're created in the image of God and probing that and what does that mean to have dignity, value, and worth? And that that is, a, that is a primary Christian idea. I've been making that case all year as to 
as a key feature of the Christian worldview. I think you're just so brave in speaking. I just want to say that, Susanna. Your question has helped everybody. And I want to, I want to commend you in that. Not, I hope you don't feel attacked. I, I really hope that you will continue to come and be curious and ask questions because there's value in your questions. And how many of you like were helped by Susanna's question? See, the whole class is glad you showed up today. And the whole class is glad that you had your question because what we did was way more interesting than me standing up here. So that's fantastic. And I hope you will keep coming and keep asking because that's, that's what we want to do. But as I said last year in our series, who remembers like what I talked about is like being kind of the, if this isn't true, Christianity can't be true. What is that? The resurrection. If the resurrection isn't true, you can make all the claims you want about scripture. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to go live a sinful life and do whatever I want and please myself. Okay? But if the resurrection is true, which how many of you remember what I said about that? The, the resurrection is a historical claim. Jesus rose from the dead. Remember that? We went through that whole routine. And appeared to over 500 he appeared to, These are all historical claims that have been written and preserved in Scripture. But then we build theology on top of those historical claims, don't we? What theology do we build on top of that history? We build the claim that we someday will rise. That our sins are forgiven. But it says that in the Bible. But the Bible, we don't... We don't we can't believe the Bible to be true unless there's a reason for it to be true. Exactly. But see, the history is the foundation of why we believe the Bible is true. And if the, here's the problem that I have with the view that the moral and theological parts are accurate, but it's okay if the historical parts are not. Our, our theology is built on the history. Unless you can explain to me what the criteria is. And that was my earlier question is, how do I know what parts are not historically accurate? Like, what is my criteria for that? How do I know? Because I can't even be a Christian if the resurrection isn't true. And the resurrection is a historical event. For the Jewish people, their whole faith is built on the Exodus event. If the Exodus is mythology, see, for them, that's their, their cross and resurrection event, is the Exodus. The Exodus event has all this historical stuff, but their whole religion and all the theology is built on the history. See, it's all intertangled with each other. You can't separate that out in a neat and clean way. And so my deal as a Christian is, why am I a Christian and not a Jew? I am a Christian because I believe the resurrection happened. That's a historical event that I believe was accurately preserved in Scripture and transcribed and, and comes to us today. But that's a historical event with theological implications. I can't separate those out for me. So it could be that there are historical things that might not be true. That I could entertain that as a possibility, but I would have to have some criteria to know what things are not accurate because then that could affect my theology. Are you with me? So, it, and, and when people tell me like, well, I don't believe everything in the Bible. Okay, that's cool. Let's talk about that. What are we talking about? If we're talking about parables, 
Sure, parables aren't history, but we don't claim that they are. You just read from an apocalyptic vision of John. We don't necessarily say that genre is history. It's an apocalyptic vision of what John received. There's a lot of different genres of literature in the Bible. Do you guys know that? Like there's poetry, there's law, there's wisdom literature. They all have different rules that apply. We don't look at Wuthering Heights the same way as we do a comic strip. Right? Those are different genres of literature that have different rules that apply to how we interpret them. Scripture's the same way. So we just have to be careful in, in how we say these things. And I want you guys to be careful in how you say things. Because when people in our oikos challenge scripture, you have to know kind of what questions to ask them. Well, tell me more about that. What does that mean for you? What, is, what, what do you exactly mean by that? And then hopefully this was helpful to you. So, um, okay, let's, let's, let's end. Father, I just thank you for how you showed up today. And that you took the class in the direction you wanted it to go because you brought Susanna here and she asked some awesome questions and that was where you wanted it to go and so cool. We're all up for that and I just thank you for how you worked through her today to bring the lesson and to bring us into some provocative questions that um, we needed to think through together and I thank you how you, how you do that, how you show up for us and, and uh, what we think our agenda is. I just love it how you interrupt us sometime with a better and a more excellent way of thinking. And we just ask that you'd help us to continue this conversation as we go forward. In Jesus' name, amen.